welcome to Dads with Daughters. In this show, we spotlight dads, resources, and more to help you be the best dad you can be. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Dads with Daughters. I am really excited to have you again here today. And today, we are talking about toxic masculinity with Dr. Paul Nathanson. He's a professor of gender, history, and religious studies at McGill University in Canada, um, based out of Montreal, and comes to this conversation with a ton of experience of talking about men, talking about toxic masculinity. And we've talked a little bit about these topics before, but I really wanted to go a little deeper and talk more about this because there were some specific things that really uh, stood out to me about how toxic masculinity can impact your health, but also impact you in many other ways. And it can also impact your children um, in the future. So, Dr. Nathanson, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. You know, I wanted to start off today. Um, you have a new book called Spreading Misandry, The Teaching of Contempt for Men in Popular Culture. But you have a number of other books out there, too. And, and many of them are talking about toxic masculinity. And I think I want to frame this conversation first by saying... Well, wait, how before do-, do that, let me just add here that my my co-author is Catherine Young. Okay, great. Now, I think I wanted to start off here by, by asking one quick question, because when I talk about toxic masculinity, some people may say, what is that? So how do you define toxic masculinity? I don't agree with many people who, in fact, I never use that expression myself. I think that for some people, it's basically synonymous with historical forms of masculinity. I think that's not true. And by the way, I when I do discuss toxic masculinity, I, I very often discuss uh, toxic femininity as well. But when you put the word toxic in front of anything, it means basically something that contaminates either the person as an individual or a group. And so the idea is that historic forms of masculinity, sometimes known as traditional, are so irrational and so uh, stressful that they have very uh, lamentable results, both for the men themselves and also to for society as a whole. And that's where the subject intersects with feminist ideology. And I don't buy the the feminist take on this, but they are right to the extent that there are some real problems with the ways in which boys are now growing up largely without fathers and therefore without anyone who can tell them about manhood from personal experience. So toxic masculinity has, it's the stress involved in denying basic features of human existence, such as emotions other than anger. When you repress this whole range of emotional life, which is there in men as it is in women, that's a, that's a pretty difficult thing to maintain without having pernicious results. So you repress all this emotion and then one day you explode. Or you repress all this emotion and you become deadened to the world 
you lose relationships because all of these things involve a full range of human emotion. So to the extent that masculinity has become toxic, it really needs research and guidance on how to restore, not to invent, but to restore forms of masculinity that conferred a healthy identity. Now, that's a long story. The business about how men can create a healthy identity, that's a story that we wrote about in a book. We covered approximately 12,000 years of history to examine men. Now, some people said, what do you want to write another book about men for? We have all these zillions of books for zillions of years that are all about men and they're all by men. Well, uh, I disagree. I think we understand less about men at this point than we do about women. Because men have been simply ignored in the academic world, except as targets for hostility. This podcast is called Dads with Daughters, and you talked about toxic femininity, and I have not really read a lot about that. How do you see that manifesting itself in women today, and also even in young girls, because many of the people that are listening today do have daughters? Yes. Well, I think the the primary manifestation of toxic femininity is the open hostility of women, many women, not all women, toward men. And this is the subject, this is basically misandry. Misandry is hostility or contempt for men as a class in the same way that misogyny is hatred or contempt for women as a class. Now, the level of misandry has truly become toxic. Now, we, we can talk about that too, but I think that most of your listeners are aware that men are very often the, the subject of ridicule and contempt in popular culture. Uh, it shows up uh, even in uh, among journalists. It shows up in the academic world. So that is the dominant, I might almost say the hegemonic, approach to the world right now. It was not so in my parents' generation, but it is now. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because it's it's definitely an interesting concept. Now, you also talked about finding that healthy identity for oneself. And I think that that's something that not all men are thinking about. And they're not always willing to take a step back and to look at themselves from the outside in. Um, a lot of times, you know, they, they focus on, if they have a family, their family, they focus on the external instead of the internal, from, from my perspective. And with that in mind, what are some steps that people can take to be able to not only look inward toward themselves, but also to find a way, a path to be able to move toward creating a healthier identity for themselves? Well, before we get to the how-to thing, and, and I'm no expert on that, but let me just get back to this, the, the history of this problem. I said that, you know, we looked at 12,000 years of human history, and, but our basic finding was that history, that is the, hist- the story of humans to the extent that we know it, which is not much when you go back 12,000 years, is a history of a series of technological and cultural revolutions. First, there was the agricultural revolution, and then uh, the industrial revolution, 
and then something that I call the military revolution. And then uh, we have the, uh, the biological revolution. And so there have been a, there's an increasing frequency of these revolutions, but they have a long history. Now, the reason I'm mentioning it is, is this. A healthy identity requires, and I, I'm, this is very important, so if, you, if people come up with nothing else that I say, this is what I want them to come up with, to have a healthy identity, either as a person or as a group, you must be able to make at least one contribution to society that is A, distinctive, no one else does it, B, necessary for, survive, for the endurance of society, and C, publicly valued. Now, if you cannot do anything that meets those criteria, you cannot have a healthy identity. And if you can't have a healthy identity, then what are the... Uh, what are the alternatives? Well, one of them is abandoning society, a society that has no room for you. You can do that through crime or through drugs, but you, you basically become antisocial. Other people have a different response. They drop out. They either drop out of school, which boys and young men do at a much, much higher rate than women, or they drop out of life altogether through suicide. And once again, men have a much, much higher rate of suicide than women do. The, the consequences of men, half the population, having a hard time establishing an identity should make us as wary and prepared as we were not for the coronavirus. Now, what were the traditional or historical contributions that men made and which conferred identity? Well, the, the three that, it's not the same in every society or every, in every period, but the three very general sources of masculine identity have been provider, protector, and progenitor. Progenitor being a fancy word for fatherhood. Now, what's happened in the recent past, that's within 50 years, is that things that once were done by men are now done by men and women. So you can't say that many of these things will produce a masculine identity because women do the same things. What's happened really is that the state has become a surrogate husband and a surrogate father. Okay? What I mean is that things that society once relied on men to do per se, men per se, now uh, it's done by the state. So women can provide for themselves, they can protect themselves, if not by themselves personally, then with help from the state. Now there's only one thing that women have not yet been able to do, although many women would disagree with me, and that is to become fathers. Now the problem with fatherhood is that it should and did once meet all these three criteria but now many people believe that mothers and fathers are interchangeable there's no difference oh there might be a little difference the way they play and the, you know and who takes out the diapers and what have you but i mean basically the idea is that women can not only be mothers but they can also be fathers and of course the opposite doesn't apply because men cannot yet become mothers Although technology could change that 
in the future. But fatherhood is not interchangeable. It has a distinctive role in family life. And it's a role that does not begin with infancy. It begins when the children get older, prepare to leave the home. So basically, to, to make a long story short, I would say that one of the essential things about motherhood is that mothers provide unconditional love. At least that's what they aim to do. I don't say that all women measure up to that, but that's the goal. And fathers require children to earn their respect. It's not quite the same thing as unconditional love, even though fathers might might well love their children unconditionally. But what they have to do, their job, their task in the family is to prepare children to live honorably in the world and therefore to teach their children how to earn the respect of the people that they meet in the world. Now, you could argue that, well, women can do that too. The problem there is that if children lack either parent, they're not getting enough of what they need because the same person cannot give those two messages, unconditional love and earned respect. The same person can't give both messages because it comes out like a double message. On the one hand, one parent says, I will love you no matter what you do, even if you become a, a Nazi or whatever. But a father doesn't say that. A father says, I will respect you if you earn it. So it's a different message, and it requires two people, uh, and not only two people, but it requires a father and a mother in the home. That's the ideal. Of course, you can't always have that ideal. We've always had children who grow up without one parent or both due to uh, death or illness or abuse of some kind or divorce. But the pattern was set as an ideal. I've definitely seen that in some aspects, but I also see that um, I, I've, I've had many men that I see that do show unconditional love to their children. I don't always see the, the demanding respect. I mean, I think that there are some men that do. I mean, I, I feel personally like I give my children unconditional love. I mean, there, there are times where that's challenging, but, it, but you give it, you know, no matter what. So how does that work when you're saying, I mean, it, I know it's, it's generalities, you know, when you're saying that m many women are the ones that are giving the unconditional love, men are looking for the respect of their children. Not many, that, that's the ideal. How many uh, live up to that ideal is another matter, and I'm not a statistician, but that's the ideal. By the way, you know, one reason for what I would consider this confusion over double messages is that our society, apart from anything else, has become heavily focused on emotion and feeling, and often at the expense of thinking. Now, that shows up very often, of course, in the polarized politics that we see every day, but it's a, it's a, it's a very disturbing phenomenon, because to be fully human means to both feel and to think. So we now have, you know, how many times have you heard somebody say, I feel that it's a good idea to do it. They don't say, I think, they say, I feel. Yeah, you, yeah, you definitely hear that. And in order to get beyond that, you see, the reason we have to get beyond it is because 
we'll never be able to acknowledge the contributions of men unless we can acknowledge some of the historic traits that have been ascribed to men as the basis of social organization. In other words, there's room in this world for both men and women. Now, one of the things that you say is that toxic masculinity can be hazardous to a man's health. Now, why is that the case? Because psychological stress translates into physical stress, physiological stress. Are there things that someone can do to be able to mitigate that stress? There are other problems. I mentioned stress, but of course, there are many other problematic features of contemporary masculinity, also known as toxic masculinity. I mean, for example, historically, men have done most of the dangerous jobs, and they have uh, sometimes been um, injured or killed on the job many times, many times more than women. So that's another example. Men take more risks than women. Now, you could say, you could argue, as some feminists argue, well, if we simply have a revolution and change everything from the ground up, which is what many feminists do want to do, we'll create a society in which there's no difference between men and women. But the trouble is that there are differences. It's not entirely a matter of culture. Now, I didn't, uh, for a long time, I resisted that, uh, that idea. I'm gay, and I, I grew up thinking that the biggest problem I had was that I didn't conform to the notions of uh, masculinity that were common. And so I, I, I had a lot of bullies, and I had all that. So it took me a long time to even consider the possibility that maybe gender is a system that every human society needs. And in fact, every human society that we know from the cross-cultural and historical record, every single society has had a gender system. Some are minimal, some are maximal, but there's always something that only women can do and something that only men can do. That's that's a broad human pattern that goes right through history. This show having many dads with daughters, I mean, are there ways in which that these fathers can talk to their daughters about how society how society is going to see gender in different ways and how um, it may impact them in their lives and how it's impacted themselves, let's say, as well? Well, sure. I'm by, uh, Far be it for me to oppose talking and uh, dialogue. No, that's, I think that's a good idea. But of course, to do that, you have to have read something. You know, it's not good enough just to ha- give an impromptu lecture or a rant. If you're going to talk to children about these things, you have to know something. I know that sounds elitist, but it's true. So where does someone start? If someone's trying to learn more for themselves so that they can have these kind of conversations with their children, where do, what do they have to do to be able to, to move forward, whether it's to you know, identify within themselves some of the traits that they may innately have or um, what they're seeing when they, they watch the media or they watch a popular culture? What are some steps that they can take to start moving forward to being better informed? I think that in everyday life, there are countless opportunities to notice and point out patterns that are questionable. 
I mean, if you see a car commercial, you know, there's a car commercial, not a car commercial. It's a, an all-state commercial. Advertising, they produce some kind of app. But anyway, it's all-state. And in the commercial, you see a couple driving on a highway, and the husband is identified as a dog, is played, in fact, by a dog. So, you know, this is something that I think fathers and mothers, for that matter, should point out and say, well, what do you think of this? Why is this commercial treating a man as a dog? And what would you say if the, if it were reversed and the woman were the dog? Don't always think about those things or don't always see those things when you're just kind of glancing. But when you really look and you really look at what is out in, in culture today and what's out in popular media, there are definite examples, like you said. I, I think I want to go back to one of the questions that I was asking before, which was talking about, again, back at toxic masculinity. And I think that there's there's definitely things that men do on a daily basis that may feed into that. And a person is is learning about themselves. They're learning about some concepts of toxic masculinity, and they think that there are traits within themselves that are leading them down that path. Are there certain things that they can do to be able to either, I don't I'm going to say lesson or to be able to move toward further enlightenment, to be able to be, I guess, a better father in the end. You know, it's one thing to identify behaviors as, as toxic. It's another thing to find an alternative. It depends a lot on the context in which you're living. I mean, I grew up in a Jewish world and we had a notion of masculinity and manhood that had nothing whatsoever to do with John Wayne or anything like that. So even though, you know, we lived in, in the this largely secular world and, and tried to negotiate the various perils, but we did, I, I went to a Jewish school. I came out with not just a bit of Hebrew, but a, the sense that there was something very fine and very honorable about the rabbinic notion of manhood. It was about it was about learning and holiness. And Judaism is by no means the only culture that that maintained that. There are Christian parallels too. They're they're different, but they're parallel. So, if someone wants to to start learning more. Are there resources that you would share? I mean, and you've got a number of books that are out there that we can definitely put into the notes today. Are there other books that would help them to start to better understand these things that you might uh, encourage them to, to read, to be able to better understand these concepts further? Sure. Warren Farrell has written, well, I don't know, maybe half a dozen books over the past 30 years, and they're all as relevant now as they ever were. He writes beautifully and very insightfully. In fact, one passage that I remember, uh, I read that must have read this 20 years ago, he describes a hike that his brother and, and his fiancee took in the wilderness somewhere. And at one point, they got snowed in and they didn't know what to do. So it was up to Farrell's brother to find help or, or food or something, uh, and he died in the process. And Farrell sees that as a kind of touchstone for understanding men and 
I think I would, I might even start with Warren Farrell. I can't remember the titles of the books, but they're just look up Warren Farrell and you'll find them all. Well, Dr. Nathanson, I, I truly appreciate you being with us today. If people want to learn more about you and more about your, your, your books, is there a certain place that they should go to be able to find more about you? I encourage people to carry on this discussion. Catherine and I have an ultimate goal, and that is to establish what we call intersexual dialogue, which is not, is not a debate. It's, not, it's, about, it's about empathy. It's a method that could be taught by social service agencies or schools or churches or what have you. So um, that's the, now we are not ready for dialogue. At the moment, men and women are at war. But nothing lasts forever. The war will end at some point, and men and women will have to carry on. So I think that although I won't live long enough to see that day, I'm 72, I'm not going to live long enough to see that, but I do hope that people bear in mind the goal. Well, I appreciate you sharing this and everything today. It's been a very interesting look at what it means to be a male in today's society. And I really appreciate you sharing all of this. And I'll definitely put links in our notes today for everyone to be able to find your books, but also to check out some of the other resources that you shared. So thank you so much. If you've enjoyed today's episode of the Dads with Daughters podcast, we invite you to check out the Fatherhood Insider. The Fatherhood Insider is the essential resource for any dad that wants to be the best dad that he can be. We know that no child comes with an instruction manual, and most dads are figuring it out as they go along. And the Fatherhood Insider is full of resources and information that will up your game on fatherhood. Through our extensive course library, interactive forum, step-by-step -step roadmaps, and more, you will engage and learn with experts, but more importantly, dads like you. So check it out at fatheringtogether.org. If you are a father of a daughter and have not yet joined the Dads with Daughters Facebook community, there's a link in the notes today. Dads with Daughters is a program of Fathering Together. Find out more at fatheringtogether.org. We look forward to having you back for another great guest next week, all geared to helping you raise strong, empowered daughters and be the best dad that you can be. We're all in the same boat. And it's full of tiny screaming passengers We spend the time We give the lessons We make the meals We buy them presents Bring your A-game Cause those kids are growing fast The time goes by just like a dynamite blast Calling astronauts and firemen, carpenters and muscle men Get out and be the world to them Be the best dad you can be Be the best dad you can be